Well, again, it's just such a pleasure to be here with you, and I just want to thank you so much for the hospitality uh, that's been shown to me and the kindness every time I visit. Uh, it's just a real pleasure to be here. Uh, this past week, as I was trying to decide what, to, um, what message to speak on this morning, I, I decided, well, should I, should I bring something that will encourage them or something that will depress them? And luckily for you, um, I flipped the coin, and, and I hope that today will be an encouragement. In fact, we're going to be preaching through uh, Philippians, and Philippians, the main theme of Philippians is encouragement. Paul aims to encourage the Philippian people as they are going through uh, many trials of many kinds, and at times finding themselves very hopeless. And Paul writes this letter from prison, and if anyone would understand how to find encouragement in time of trials, it's Paul. And so he finds it here, and he encourages them. I'd like to jump right in as we, we read Philippians chapter 3, and your bulletin says 8 through 21. I'm actually going to start just a, a verse before in 721, uh, reading it in its entirety and then spending some time going through it bit by bit. So let us go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever I gain, sorry, whatever I, sorry, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to worship you, to continue in our worship as we go through your scripture, your word that is inerrant, that is given to us to guide us, in all righteousness. God, we want to be like you. We want to imitate you. 
We want to find hope and comfort and peace in you, even in times of chaos. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to receive your encouragement, to receive your unfailing love and faithfulness. Be with us now this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Paul begins this passage by sharing a little bit of his own Christian progress through the faith. And I myself am intrigued by progress. And and even driving this morning uh, and seeing buildings being built up and houses being constructed and new uh, storefronts being opened and just seeing the progress of things. My wife and I, just this December, will be in our house for uh, four years. And when we were married and we bought this house, uh, we had it built uh, in Marana. And it took seven months to be built. And every week I would go up there and take pictures of it. Maybe if you've had a house built or you had a new house you, and you put things in it and you saw the progress of it. Every week I went in and, and uh, I felt so bad. The workers were getting so annoyed with me just like watching them work uh, like a micromanager or something. You know, seeing the concrete being poured and seeing the frame being constructed and then seeing the stucco on and the tile on the roof. And every step of the way, this progress was so encouraging. It was so neat to see how things became into the image as they were designed to be. I love how things are are built. I watch this show, How Things Are Made. And I love this show. They take everyday things like a tennis racket or a piano or a guitar or a skateboard. And they show you from conception to completion the progress of how this thing is made. You know, our our Christian journey is a lot like this. Our Christian journey is constantly in progress. Think 10 years ago in your life. Even if you have not put your faith in Christ, where were you 10 years ago? Some of you may not even have been born 10 years ago. Where was your faith in Christ? Where was your journey? What point in your life were you? You've probably learned a lot since then. You're probably in a different place today than you were then. There's progress. Paul shares about his progress. He shares about moving from an idol worship in his life to godly worship in his life. And I call these things idols because these were things, these were created things that Paul trusted in for his happiness. And just in the previous couple verses, he goes through and he lists those things. And I didn't read those off today because we have our own things. You know, Paul said, I was a, a Gentile among Gentiles, a Hebrew among Hebrews. I, had, I was, I was uh, intelligent. I was circumcised on the eighth day. All of these things I had to my credit. These were things that were important to me that I trusted in for my happiness. I, these are idols. When we trust in created things for our ultimate joy and happiness in life, we are idolaters. Isn't that... I know that's kind of... And you're thinking, I thought you were going to encourage us this morning. I'll get to it. But when we worship or put our happiness in created things, those things become idols in our life. Not only weird tribes in foreign countries have idol worship, but we have it right here. Idols are good things. Uh Uh-oh. Now, don't, I'm going to finish, but don't go off now and say, Pete said it's good to have idols. Idols are good things in the wrong place. These may be your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, your grade point average, your car, your, your motorcycle, 
your, your clothes, your image, your self-esteem, your humor, your hair, your shoes that you got. This could be your Xbox. This could be alcohol. This could be your house, your salary. This could be being a Republican, being a Democrat, your bank account, your talents. It could be food. It could be pets. It could be so many things. What is on your list of the things when chaos hits, those things bring you comfort? These are good things in the wrong place. And when we place these things in the wrong place, in the ultimate position where Christ ought to be, we are idolaters. And Paul is saying, that is where I used to be. I used to be an idol worshiper. Because I used to have things in this column, in this gain column. He said, I once counted these things as gain. These were things that brought me complete joy. These were things that I trusted in for ultimate happiness. But now that column is wiped clean of those things, and those things that I trusted in before are now in a column titled loss. They used to be gain for me, but now they are worthless things to me when it comes to ultimate happiness. At one point, the gain column was full of those things for him, and now they're loss. They were demoted from gain to loss, not because they went out of style, not because new, better models of those things came along, but they went into the loss column because he knew that he could not take hold of Christ if all of those things were in the ultimate position. We must put the ultimate thing in the highest place, and Paul encourages us with that. And for Paul, he says, what must be in that ultimate position of gain for us is to know Christ. Knowing Christ surpasses everything else. Imagine you go home today and on your front lawn is everything that you possess. Your house, your cars, your clothes, your possessions, your furniture, your bank, all the, all the money in your bank is on your front yard. And it's just ablaze with flames. It's just engulfed with flames. Towering above your house. Everything is being consumed by fire. And if you look at that, and if you go home, and you're in a position, and you think, my life is over, there is no chance for any hope. I have lost all hope for happiness and joy. Then I would say, you think you may know Christ, but you don't know Him well enough. Because if any of, the, any of these things to, take that ultimate position of happiness for our life, then Christ does not. And we are idol worshipers. It's all about knowing Christ. What does it look like? What does this look like to know Christ? Think about that. Rest in that. If I knew Christ, or as you know Christ, what does that mean to you? It means that we have this intense and overwhelming deep satisfaction with who God has made us. With the things that happen in our life. It doesn't mean that we're happy with everything that comes along in our life. But we have a deep peace knowing that Christ is above all those things. 
It means that we can receive this love from God. To know Christ means that when He says that, when we read in the Bible and people say, God loves you, we're overwhelmed with peace knowing that that's true. Knowing Christ means that we are freed up to love others from our heart. We're freed up to be generous with others, giving to them generously, knowing that God is going to take care of our needs. Knowing Christ means that we're not afraid about what's going to happen tomorrow because we know that whatever comes our way, how tragic it would be, we know that Christ is going to take care of us. We know that He is going to be bigger than all those things. We know that there's nothing that can completely knock us out and down without hope. Knowing Christ is when we see progress in our faith every single year and we see that we're, our relationship with God is being strengthened and sharpened and more intimate and more personal and more fulfilling and more satisfying. And because of that, our relationship with others around us is more intimate and fulfilling and meaningful. Where the petty things are starting to go in the loss column and in the gain column are the ultimate things of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ means that when we come here together for the Lord's Day and we are able to worship God from the depths of our heart, knowing that the words that we sing are true, that He loves us, that it's unending, that He's faithful to us. Knowing Christ is the ultimate gain. Paul understands it. Christ is rightly known, and he goes on, Paul goes on in this passage to talk about what does it look like then to know Christ, and what areas are we to know Christ. And to rightly know Christ, we must understand two things. We must understand what it means to know Christ in his death, and to know Christ in his resurrection. I'll go through each of those kind of briefly. How do we understand his death? How do we know Christ and associate with his death? I'll be honest with you, we cannot talk about Christ and we cannot understand Christ and know Him and take hold of Him without talking about the death of Christ. Some people may say Christ was a wonderful teacher. When He was here, He was a great teacher. You're right, He was a great teacher, but He died for something. Some people say He was a, he was a great prophet of God who brought good news from God that we needed to hear. That's true. He did bring good news from God. But he also died. Some may say, Christ is just a great example for us on how we should live our life. Christ lived a life, and he lived a good, perfect, moral life, and so we should look to Christ and live after that. That's true, he is a good example, but he also died. There's something about Christ's life that we can't ignore, and that's his death. It's inconvenient, it's hard. We look at that and say, why did he have to die? And so we're confronted with this, and Paul says, to know him deeply, we must know his death. When we think about his death, we ask, well, why did he die? He died for us. And he needed to die for us because we did something wrong, because we messed up. Because the wages of sin is death, and we have sinned, and so he must die. 
Our sin must be satisfied. It must be destroyed. Sin hurts. Sin is painful. Sin is ugly. And again, you're thinking, I thought I was going to be encouraged today. It is through Christ's death that we are able to move those idols from our gain column and put them into our loss column. Christ's death enabled us to be free from the slavery of sin. It's because of Christ's death that we are now forgiven and pardoned of our sins. This is the good news. This is the good thing. This is the encouraging thing. That all of those things that we once trusted in, when we went home and when chaos hit our life and we once thought, I hope these things are here tomorrow because if they're not, I don't know what I'm going to do. The good news is, is Christ is saying, you don't need those things anymore. You don't need to get it right. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to dot every I and cross every T for me to love you. Because instead of you dying for your sins, I'm dying for your sins. This is the good news. The good news is that we have been given a righteousness. We are seen as right before God. Not because we got it right, but because Christ got it right. We gain Christ's righteousness, and this is what Paul says. We want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own by works, but a righteousness by faith in Christ. How can we understand the resurrection? We know what his death teaches us. That we're free from that sin. What about his resurrection? What does his resurrection teach us? Because Christ rose from the dead, death is powerless against you and I. Not just Christ. It's not that death is powerless to hold Christ. It's powerless to hold us. Death is not our ultimate destination. We have freedom from condemnation of sin because of His resurrection. We have freedom from slavery to our sin because of His resurrection. We have hope in our life for a changed life, for a renewed life, because Christ rose from the dead. Many may think and and, and object and say, if Christ died for our sins, He didn't need to rise from the dead. That would have been good enough. Christ's resurrection is necessary for our resurrection. It's necessary for our hope of a new life. And because Christ rose from the dead, we can be risen from the dead with new bodies. And Paul talks about this in our passage, that we will have not this lowly body. Some of you may think you have a very nice body. But I tell you, it doesn't compare to the body you're going to have where there's no aches and pains and sores and blisters and fatigue and illness and sickness and weakness and pain and feelings of broken heart and depression and anxiety and fear. That's going to go away and we're going to be given a glorious body like Christ has. This is good news. And Paul is saying, this is how we must understand and know Christ. He says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Christ in, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just as Christ's death is so tightly connected 
And I would say his death is so inseparable from his resurrection, it must be so inseparable in our daily lives. Knowing Christ and his death and resurrection go hand in hand. And so we, as, as we look at our sin and how Christ has conquered our sin, we don't just sit in that and sit in our pain, but we move forward towards something that we hope for. The resurrection brings new life through faith in Christ. And there's, so there are characteristics of this new life. And Paul goes into this passage and he says, this is what then this new life looks like for you and I. He says, one thing I do in verse 13 and 14. This is what I do in my new life. I forget what lies behind. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, those who are mature should think this way. This is the mark of a mature Christian. Someone who thinks this way. Now I could, for a moment, uh, I feel impulsed, but I won't, to, to ask for a show of hands of all those people who think that they are mature Christians. But I don't want you to do that. It's kind of like asking everybody, um, if you are humble, uh, raise your hand. Who is the most humble person in this room? Raise your hand. I am the most humble person here. It's kind of like that with maturity. Is it okay to wonder if you're a mature Christian? Or is it okay to consider yourself a mature Christian? And this isn't talking about, and I looked into it, this isn't talking about age, mature being older, immature being younger. This is talking about being a perfected Christian, a complete and whole person. So Paul says, though, this is what maturity looks like, someone who thinks like this. It's the mark of a mature Christian. You know, and he says, it's the same word, actually, that Paul uses when he says, I am actually not yet perfect. It's the same adjective that he uses in this passage in the Greek when he says, those who are mature should think like this. So it's almost like Paul is saying, the most mature Christians know that they are not yet mature. Does that make sense? Because they know they have a long way to go. Because they know that they're not like Christ. Because they know that they don't know Christ as well as Christ knows them. And that's maturity. He goes on and talks about this mature faith and what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And he uses a couple of word pictures here that we'll go through to talking about the different kinds of people. Some people who are mature Christians and think like this. The ones that forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And those who don't do that. The first image is, are, that I think is so important for us to realize and have this image in our mind as we are in this progress of faith is the image of those that are mature. He gives the image of a, of a race. He talks about a goal. He says you strain toward this goal to obtain it, to press on towards this goal. It's the image of this runner, this foot race. A runner in a race has a goal, and they fix their eyes on it. And they do not wander aimlessly to the left or to the right, but their head is and eyes are completely fixed on where they are going. They do everything to finish 
They do whatever it takes. And not that they have doubt that they might not finish, but they know how challenging this race can be, so they throw off all distractions to ensure that they will do everything it takes to finish. They don't look back. This is interesting because you and I, we want to learn from our mistakes. We want to learn from our victories. But both can be distractions as well. They can stimulate our faith, but they also distract our faith. Think about your struggles and your weaknesses and your failures in your life. As you look back on those things, what do those do? Those have the potential to distract you from moving forward. They can put you in a prison and paralyze you where you can't move out of those weaknesses and failures that you have did years ago, days ago, this morning, whatever. They can distract you in your faith. And so he says, forget those things that lie behind, but strain, press on towards the goal. They can make you feel guilty and shameful. And Paul says, we don't have condemnation. But our victories can be distractions as well, can't they? Things that you did well years ago, months ago, weeks ago, this morning, whatever. Pride causes us to take our eyes off of Christ, doesn't it? Remember that one time, how awesome I was? Remember that one time, remember that one thing I did that was really good, and you couldn't? Remember how awesome, aren't I awesome? So victories have the tendency to distract us off of Christ and put things in the gain column that don't belong there. We start to idolize ourselves, our victories, our accomplishments, and our our talents and our gifts. I'm doing very well, aren't I? <laughs> and it's amazing how far I've come in my faith and, um, and, how, and how far you haven't come and, and how you're still really trying and you're struggling in this area, but um, I don't struggle in that area anymore. Others should be just like me. You know, when we start being distracted by our victories, and even the things we do well, we start to idolize those things. Our past can stir up our passion, but it can also create a distraction for us. We need to be careful that we learn from our victories and mistakes, but we don't idolize them. One thing I do, he says, is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When chaos strikes when stress comes into our life, when things happen that we didn't prepare for, these kinds of people have a forward focus. These kinds of people are forward-minded. These people do not live in the present or in that frustration, but they focus on their goal. They know that God is in control, so they can keep their eyes on Him. They find ways to seek out Christ and his goodness in those chaotic moments. Where are you leading me in this Christ? I didn't prepare for this. I didn't expect this. This is very different from what I had in mind. What are you doing with me in this? Where are you going, Christ? How can I follow? People that are forward-minded think like that. They're ultimately not distracted by stress or trouble in their day, but they continue to gaze on Christ. A runner looks ahead. A runner doesn't look back. A runner prepares well. A runner is motivated by the prize at the end. So a mature Christian is motivated in their day by the prize of knowing Christ intimately. By experiencing Him even in that trouble. 
by knowing Him better every single day, knowing the love that He has for you every day, knowing that He will not give up on you every day or any day. A mature Christian thinks like that. You may know people like this, but I tell you, there are probably not many. You probably don't know a lot of people like that. And if you know a couple, those are treasures. And Paul says, keep an eye on those people and be like them. Look at what they do and their attitudes that they have when they come into trouble and imitate them. And be like them. They have a faith that is not confusing, but a faith that is very firm. And people can tell. They trust God, even when it feels like God isn't listening at times. Because they know that God's trustworthy. They know He's very close. Paul says, be like this person. So you have this picture of this runner. And Paul gives this picture of this mature Christian. How they look for, they're forward-minded. They're not distracted by their past or their present. But they keep going. And he gives this other example here about a person who's not like that at all. And he calls these people, he says, these people are people whose God is their belly. It's an interesting analogy, isn't it? These people live in the moment. These people follow every urge and impulse and passion that comes their way. Whether it be feel, uh, fear or lust or anxiety or temptation. They live in the moment. They can't see beyond the day. They're not only distracted by everything, but they indulge in every distraction. The analogy is fitting for today as good as any generation. And it's amazing that even this analogy would be fitting for this time 2,000 years ago. We compare it to an appetite for food. Someone whose God is their belly stirs up the image of food and appetite and digestion and things like that. When was the last time that you ate an enormous meal and were completely full and then you felt to yourself in your exhaustion after eating, I know there's cake in the fridge and I really shouldn't eat it. How many times after you go to the fridge and you eat that cake and you think to yourself, I'm really glad I did that. It never happens. It's never happened to me. And every time I think it's going to happen, I'm thinking this is going to be worth it. Someone whose God is their belly knows that they should not indulge and then because they think it will make them happy. They think it will bring them comfort. They think it will ease their suffering. And they do it and they're so disgusted and dissatisfied with what they've done. People whose God is their belly live in the moment. They indulge in those moments and so that they can find happiness in it, and they realize that that happiness is so short-lived. And they're back where they started. There is no joy in these kinds of people. There is no lasting, intimate, significant joy for these people. When chaos hits, these people whose God is their belly go back to that gain column and they struggle aimlessly to find something to hold on to that will bring them some comfort from their pain. God, chaos and trouble has hit my life. I need something close that I can feel better. So I'm going to go to that, that 
column and I'm going to grab my boyfriend, my girlfriend, food, my possessions, my money, my cars, my clothes, my image, my humor. I'm going to be clinging onto these things to bring me some happiness. My spouse, my shopping, my work. I'm going to engulf myself in these things hoping that they will make me feel better. And they never do. They never do. People whose God is their belly, they're driven by their urges, by their passions, by their impulse, not by faith. What they worship is ultimately meaningless because all of those things will one day be on their front lawn in a gulf of flames and they're going to be feeling hopeless and say, now what? They do not have a forward focus, but they have a now focus. I was intrigued by this phrase in the original language of their God is their belly. And I looked really well into that, and I was so intrigued by it, and it was fascinating. There are many different words for belly. There's the upper belly, the, 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 lower, the upper belly where the food goes in and people are satisfied. And then there's the lower belly where the end of everything comes out, and it's not... That's not the pretty part. That's the waste. That's the worthless stuff. So the bottom part of the belly. And this word that he uses for belly is a different word that means the whole entire thing. And I wonder if he uses this word particularly because those things that we run to for happiness, they do make us feel good. They are pleasing at first. But when they run their course, they become worthless. Just like a digestion track. Just like when we, we eat but not for long, that is waste. People who have no faith and people who trust in those things are people whose God is their belly. They're idol worshipers. And after looking at those idols, this isn't too far-fetched for us either. It's easy for us to place those things in that game column and run after things to make us happy when Christ deserves that ultimate position. What can we do? Where can we go from here? When we have these two things and Paul is encouraging us, he says trouble is going to come, but this is what we do. We need to forget what lies behind. We need to stream forward. We need to make sure that Christ is in that ultimate position. Here's what you can do. is, is Look at your gain list and look at your loss list. Are things where they need to be? And that's something that you need to look at yourself and you need to evaluate. All those good things. Your spouse, your relationships, your work, your money, your cars, your possessions, your, your humor, your, your image, your self-esteem, your talents, all these things that are so good, are they where they need to be, where they're supposed to be? Or are they idols in your life? And Paul says, I used to be like that. And now I realize it's not about me. And I, know, and I realize it's not about getting it perfect. But it's about Christ getting it perfect. And He did. And He loves me. And He gives me His righteousness. And I believe that by faith. And so by faith, I behold that. And I clothe myself in Christ's righteousness. I ask you, how important is it for you to know Christ? Is it somewhat important? Is it moderately important? Or is it your goal? Is it the prize at the end of your race? At the end of each day, is that your prize? And everything that you do in your day, is it so that you can reach that prize to know Christ? And Paul is saying that is the only thing worth running for. It's the only thing that's going to last. 
The other thing I'd like you to consider doing is to hang out with people that gaze on Christ. I want you to spend time with people that are like those mature Christians, that don't go around admitting that they're mature Christians, but people that you know as you look at, you see that things have come into your life that if they would have happened to me, I would have crumbled. But I can tell that you trust in something bigger than yourself. Hang out with people like that. Do you know people in your life already that are like that? Seek out their friendship. Because I guarantee you, as you spend time with people like that, you will become like that. Another thing is to show younger people what this looks like to be a mature Christian. This is important. Model complete dependence on Christ's righteousness and not your own. It's so easy to preach Christ's righteousness and it's so difficult to live it. To say that I don't need to get it perfect, but then to go home and, treat and teach your kids that they do need to get it perfect. Don't demand perfection, but encourage godliness. Encourage obedience. Encourage godliness. That they would run after Christ as you run after Christ. Don't teach them how to be good people, but teach them how to be godly people. Good people. Just doing good. Christianity is not about being a good person. That's idolatry. So let's see how, get, how good you can get it. How many things you can put in your gain column so that you can count those, those as a credit to your life. It's not about being a very moral person. It's, person. it's about being a godly person. And this is such a wonderful privilege for you and I who are starting to grasp, grasp these things in our life and saying, I want a faith like that. What a great opportunity and privilege it is to model that to younger people. To show them an ex- the supreme example of love and faithfulness of God. We want to be God worshipers. We want to worship God. We want to know Christ so well that it's everything in our life. It's what motivates us to get up and to run the race. Chapter 3 ends with this profound statement, so we'll end there as well. In verse 20, Paul finishes off this beautiful discourse with just the most profound encouragement. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This life, Paul is saying, is more than just our mortal lives right now. Life is so much more than the life that we're living right now. And he says, Paul, in prison, is saying... I'm waiting and I'm continuing to go forward. He's saying, I'm about to die, but I still am running for a prize to know Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we have the privileges and the blessings of all that comes with that. We have protection. He knows us so well. He will transform us. He will make us new. He will take away all the things that cause us pain and He will give us all the things that completely give us joy. It is so future-focused. And He leaves these people in this chapter to be future-focused. 
in the midst of all their struggles, look forward, look ahead, pick up your chin and look at Christ. And one day when Christ comes back and our bodies are transformed, we will look back on those troubles and say, those were complete worthless. We will say, those things were, didn't even compare to what I have now and how I hold on to Christ. And now I know Him as intimately as He knows me. Because right now you don't know Christ as well as He knows you. I used to think that Christianity was about Jesus loves you, and He's nice to you, so now love Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian, and everything will be awesome. And I am blown away that it's not like that. You do not know Christ as well as He knows you. You do not love Christ as well as He loves you. But one day you will. One day you know Him as intimately as He knows you. That's something to look forward to. But in this life, we can get closer and closer and closer and closer to that. We can know Him more intimately each and every day, and it will only bring happiness and joy and satisfaction. So let's look at that. Let's gaze our eyes on Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we so eagerly await You. God, we have this forward focus and we want it to trickle down into our lives today. We do not want just our heads and our hearts in the clouds waiting for you, but with our feet on the ground as we walk this Christian journey, we want to have a future perspective, knowing that you can conquer and have conquered all things, and all things one day will be obedient to you. You're our ultimate authority, our ultimate love, our ultimate satisfaction. You deserve that ultimate place in our life. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to be a runner who has trained and is looking ahead towards the prize. Help us not to indulge in the now and be distracted by the now, but help us to strain towards you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.